This is Radiate, the podcast that celebrates life and shines a light on life-restoring stories of organ, tissue, and eye donors, recipients, and information you need to know about donation. Welcome back to Radiate. I'm Audrey Coleman, your host. Thank you for joining us today. September is National Suicide Awareness Month. My guest today has significant experience both personally and professionally with death by suicide. Greg Adams is a social worker at Arkansas Children's Hospital where he coordinates the Center for Good Morning, and that's morning spelled with an O-U. And that's a grief support and outreach program. He also provides bereavement support for hospital staff who are exposed to suffering and loss. Greg has 10 years experience in pediatric oncology and nine years in pediatric palliative care. Greg is, an, is also an adjunct professor at the University of Arkansas Little Rock Graduate School of Social Work, where he teaches a class on grief and loss. Greg has had his own personal experiences with death and loss as well. In 1988, his father-in-law died of an unexpected suicide. And in 1996, Greg and his wife lost a child in mid-pregnancy to anencephaly in which the baby's brain did not develop. Greg's mother died of cancer in hospice in 2008, and his father died after the family decided to remove him from the ventilator he was on following a devastating episode of sepsis and pneumonia in 2015. Greg, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. I'm really glad to be here. So suicide is a subject that's difficult at best for most people to talk about. Why is that other than the fact that it obviously deals with death, but why is it so difficult? I think that's a great question. And I I think it's really a a complicated situation um, to to think about. And, you know, as you mentioned, Audrey, I think one thing is that death in general is hard for most of us to talk about and discuss. You know, it's a very painful topic. Um, it raises really big questions about, you know, why why somebody dies, why now, why why this way, and and it reminds us all, you know, that life is can be pretty fragile and that there's limits to life, and that, and all of us will eventually die. But I think that suicide takes all those concerns and and takes them up to, to a, a higher level for so many of us. You know, the questions that are left behind, um, that we're left behind with are, are really challenging. You know, the why questions about, so, so why did this happen? You know, and how did somebody get in this kind of a place? And w- was this a choice that they, that they made? Or were they overwhelmed by it, by some situation or some kind of combination? And, and could I have done something to, to stop that? Right. So is mm-hmm. this a preventable death or not? Um, because we know that preventable deaths carry a different kind of burden for us. And so there's a real question about preventable and it's, and also about, you know, whether or not um, we personally are connected. You know, if I heard that a friend died with um, cancer, I wouldn't think, gosh, I wonder if I could have stopped that cancer. You know, I wouldn't have had that, uh, right. that kind of question. And, and then I think um, it's been said, you know, that 
one of the complicating things is that the person who died is in some ways the victim and the perpetrator all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I think that there's a few other things that make it make it hard is that one is that we worry about um, many times, okay, if we talk about suicide, is that going to increase the chance that other people are going to kill themselves? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and there's still about a stigma connected to suicide, even though I think it is improving and it's connected in some way to the stigma for mental health that's still there. We think about mental illness differently than we think about physical illnesses. Yes, we do. And, and then the last thing that I would probably mention is that for many people, you know, there are religious questions. Um, you know, in our part of the country, most people believe that there's an afterlife, there's a mm-hmm. heaven and a hell. And so some people believe that if you kill yourself, you, you can't go to heaven. Some people don't believe that. Some people are not sure what they believe. And so it, it's hard sometimes to talk about it because um, you may not know what you think or you may not know what the other person thinks. Yes, yes. And, and that, that all makes perfect sense. And so, you know, with all of that in mind, I, I'm, I'm guessing that when a family member loses a loved one who died by suicide, it's it's very confusing for them. And especially if they didn't quote see it coming, if they yeah. if they were it's out of the blue for them. Um, how what's what's been your experience about how families are able to um, process that information, process that their loved one made a choice? Is that appropriate to say that they made a choice? You know, I, I think that's, that, that's part of the confusing piece about the, the choice part of it. Um, most of us, uh, you know, think that there's at least some part of choice. I, I'll mention a story. So for several years, you know, we did a camp um, along with a, a local foundation that, um, that was the Alex Blackwood Foundation for Hope. We did a camp for kids who were impacted by suicide. And a couple years ago, with last year that we did the camp, um, we had some campers who had come every year for a number of years and they were gonna graduate from high school. And so they'd been dealing with this for a long time. And so part of the camp, most camp was just camp fun stuff, but part of it, we would do grief support kinds of stuff. And mm-hmm. I asked them, the kids who were graduating especially, I said, so when you think about your person who died, I said, um, you know, do you think it was that they were totally in control of that? You know, that was it was totally their choice. They were totally mm-hmm. in control of that. Or do you think they had no control of it? Or there was somewhere in the middle? Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. Most of them felt like it was somewhere in the middle. And um, and I think that there's something to that. You know, if uh, you know, if you and I were friends, and 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 we got into a conflict, and I lost my temper with you, and I said something that was ugly, then I might come back later and say, Audrey, you know, I'm I'm sorry. You know, I I didn't mean to say that. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I did mean to say it, right? Because I said yes, it. Yes, of course. But in another way, I didn't mean to say it. That the the emotion overwhelmed me at the time, and I and I did something that another part of me did not want to do, hmm. and and I think that that's that can be a piece of it for at least some people who who die by suicide. But I, when we think about the, the warning signs, you know, if, if people saw it or not, if we do see warning signs, particularly in hindsight, we look back and say, "Ooh, I should have." Ooh, look at this. This yes. this was. 
this was kind of a red flag or, or this one could have been a red flag, then we have the challenge of, of guilt and feeling responsible. And if we don't see any, and if we look back and we just never do, if we never see any warning signs, then that's really unsettling. It's sort of like getting lightning out of a clear blue sky. It's like, wow, the world is so risky and unpredictable that that's a, a very anxious thing to think about. Yes. And, and so, I mean, all of that just sort of adds to the, the confusion ball sort of of it. Um, mm-hmm. And if, is it correct or fair to say that if a person dies by suicide, they were experiencing depression or despair? Is that always true? That's a great question. Um, the best information that we have is that people who die by suicide, that, that about 90% of them have some kind of mental health um, condition, with depression being the most common. That Now, they weren't always diagnosed with that while they were alive, but looking back if we mm-hmm. do the, with the research, we can see that they had that. So that doesn't mean that, a, that, that everybody was, but, that, but that, uh, that most people were, and that depression was the most common but it, but part of the confusing thing is that most people who are depressed don't try to kill themselves and, and uh, don't kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and even people who have a suicide attempt, you know, uh, and who continue and live, most of them don't end up dying by suicide. And so it, it's a really confusing kind of picture to figure out sometimes who it, who it is, who does and who doesn't. Absolutely. And, I don't know. Um, I, I guess the question is with, with some of um, some people who, who die by suicide, you wonder if they even realized at that time that they, what they were experiencing, if they were, if they recognized that they were feeling yeah. despair or, or pressure. And so if the family member has not experienced those kinds of feelings, it can make it even more difficult, I would imagine, for them to be able to understand how those kinds of feelings could result in death by suicide. So as a, as a mental health professional, do you, try to, do you try to guide them through what the loved one might have been experiencing? Is that important for the family to understand what might have caused the act? I think so. I, th- I think to understand as best as possible, and there's always going to be limits because the only person who could really tell us what was going on and what was going on inside their heart and their head is not here anymore. Mm-hmm. And even if they left a note, it was uh, it doesn't always give us a very clear picture, you know, of of what was going on. But there's a few things that we would that those of us who work in the grief support world would try to help people understand if we can. One, one is, is that it's always complicated that suicide is, is not just one thing. And, and sometimes I think in the media or in those conversations, we're tempted to believe that. Reno, we're thinking, well, you know, he was bullied at school or, or she just lost her job or there'd been a relationship that broke up and, and that's what it is. Well, that's, that could be a piece of it and may well have been a piece of it, but it's not all of it because not every child who gets bullied kills themselves, only a few. Not every person who has a relationship breakup 
kills themselves or none of us probably would be around, right? Or, and, and people who lose their jobs and have other really difficult things. And so that could be a piece of it, but it's not mm-hmm. all of it. And so we really think about it as a, a kind of a toxic, perfect storm that all these things come together in just a particular way and at just a particular moment. Uh, and we know about that in Arkansas. You know, we get we get a tornado sometimes when we get these warning signs that, that these are conditions are right for that. But we don't know if it's going to happen and we don't know when it's going to happen. But we know that the conditions have to be just right, you know, for it to happen. And I think that can happen for suicide, too. But a guy named Edward Schneidman spent his career studying suicide. And, and he explained it in a way that has been really helpful to me and helpful, I think, when we've been able to share this with others. He, he summarized it to say that, that it generally comes down to three things. So the first one is pain, and that somebody is experiencing a, a level of pain that it feels like it's all that they can handle. And, you know, they, they've got it up it's, it's, uh, as far as they can go, and they can't handle it anymore. And pain is subjective, you know, because pain comes, you know, I can't tell you you're not in pain and you can't tell me I don't feel pain. And the pain can come from lots of places. It can be physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, relationship, all kinds of pain. And so, but for whatever reasons, somebody feels like they have all the pain that they can bear. And then something else happens. And that pain goes from kind of the you know, if you think about it up at the top of your head, I've got all I can get, and now it's over my head. And mm-hmm. now it is more than I can bear. And and what I want to do, and what and the most important thing to me at this point, then, is to get relief from this pain. And I'm and I'm not thinking very straight at that point. I'm just I'm overwhelmed by by the pain. And then if I have the means available, so if they're with medications or a firearm or something else. Then that's the per- that's your perfect storm. The the pain is there. Over something happens, it pushes me over the edge. The means are there, and then it happens. So f- from that aspect, then I, I guess you could say that um, suicide is an act of opportunity. So if everything, if if a person is feeling those things that you just described. But there's, there's not a weapon, there's not a knife, there's no means for them to follow mm-hmm. through, then that could prevent them from going forward, or it could provide the opportunity if those things are there. Does that make sense? Yes, and I think that's correct. And so, you know, if we look at those three things, the pain and then something stirring it up and then the means as, as being, you know, major factors, then part of what we do in the suicide prevention world is we try to we try to look at each of those things. So could we help people who are experiencing pain? Could we help them get the kind of support that they need so they could take their pain down to a more manageable level? You know, so if they are depressed, if they are struggling, can we try to help them take advantage of the kind of support and treatments that are out there um, so that when something else comes up in their life, you know, they have space to handle it. And then we try to be, uh, we try to make our our culture and our societies and our organizations kinder and more supportive. Mm-hmm. So that's why we don't want to bully people or, or 
and make things harder because we don't know what somebody's carrying. Exactly. And um, and then we try to be smarter with the means. Mm-hmm. You know, so we try to, you know, store our firearms safely and and lock them up and and keep our medications locked up. And especially if we know somebody's struggling in in our house, we might even take them out because it's too much. It, it's, a lot of us can understand, you know, if if we're trying to eat more healthy and but but we know that those Oreo cookies, man, if I had a package of Oreo cookies, <laughs> I would probably get started and I would not stop. You know, yeah. I would get the milk out and all. So <laughs> what do I do? I just don't have them in my house. Right, right. Because I could still get them, but if I get that urge for them, I'd have to get in a car and drive down and get them. So the, the chances that I can resist that urge are much greater if they're not available. Exactly. If it takes exactly. more effort. And we know about this that um, with research that you know, places where they have put, you know, uh, netting and guards up at, at bridges where people mm-hmm. are t- tend to to to, to uh, jump off. They don't. They don't just go to the next bridge. You know, it, it really reduces the rates. And so sometimes people will think, of, you know, because they don't understand it, that well, if somebody's going to do it, they're going to do it. They're, they'll find another way. But that's not really true. Um, some can't, may, but most won't, because. If they can survive that moment, like you described, if they can survive that moment of opportunity and uh, toxic stress, then most people can survive. That, that's interesting because um, I never thought of it that way. And I think I probably was one of those people who, who thought, you know, the determination to get the act accomplished was greater than anything else. And if that bridge is closed or that bridge has a net, you go to the next one. I think that I probably did think that, and I would imagine that there's a significant portion of our audience who's, who's thought that as well. Um, you know, earlier we were talking about um, the, the blame or the guilt that families sometimes feel um, when they lose a loved one in, the, in this manner. And and it's sometimes because they say, I, I didn't see the signs. Yeah. So is it, um, do, you, do you get referrals or, or do you have um, families very often who will come to you and say, I'm afraid that this is going to happen. I'm afraid that my son or my daughter or my brother is headed towards suicide and I want to stop it. Does, does that happen very often? We do see that. We see that sometimes in our emergency department, mm-hmm. you know, where somebody will come in and they've, they've, uh, they made an attempt or they, or they've, they've made a threat and they've talked or they're struggling so much. And, and so we're really glad of course, when they come because, because then we have an opportunity to, to do something about it. And, um, and it, and our goal is zero suicides, but, you know, I, I think that's an aspirational goal because mm-hmm. it's, um, that suggests that we can control everything. And we, I don't think we can control everything. Right. But, but there are things we can do that really do make a difference. Um, and so when we get people the right kind of help, when we know about it, um, and, and that's one of the biggest things we can do. And when we can can make our culture and our organizations kinder. And when we can be smarter with means, we have the research all points that those things do make a difference. You know, one thing I, I, I didn't say before, Audrey, that I should say that, you know, some of us, and I'm one of those people, 
I've been very fortunate in my life, even though, you know, there have been hard times and hard losses. Mm -hmm. I have never been so down that I was suicidal. Um, but, and I think that some other people have not had that experience either. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who, who had somebody die by suicide and she said that, that she also got in a really dark place and it really kind of helped her in some ways because she realized that when she was in that dark place, that it wouldn't have mattered very to her if somebody said something to her, you know, like I care about you because it, for her at that point, she was, it was too deep mm -hmm. and it kind of gave her an idea like, well, it might not have made a difference for this other person. Um, you too could, um, but I have had the experience, maybe a whole bunch of us have, where, you know, we've been sick. So I've had experience where, you know, I've had the kind of GI bug and, you know, I'm, I'm throwing up, I'm nauseous. Maybe I'm losing out the other end too and having some diarrhea, you know, and, and it just feels miserable. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I don't want to talk to my family. I don't want to see my friends. Yeah. I just want to go to sleep. Right. And not feel sick. And that, and I wonder if that's just a little slice of, you know, or a little insight or window into what it would feel like for somebody if they're in that overwhelming pain, mm -hmm. that at that point, it doesn't mean that they don't care about anybody else, but it means that they want relief and, and relief from whatever it is, is the most important. Just like if I'm nauseous and I can't sleep and I'm that sick, right? At that moment, that's the thing in the front of my head and the back of my head, I just want some relief. Uh, that's a that's a really interesting analogy. And it's easy to, I think that's one that would be easy for most people to be able to relate to because we most of us have been that in that place. Yeah. So in that moment, you, that's what you're thinking about is I just want to feel better right now. Right. I talked about people blaming themselves for um, or feeling that they blame feeling the blame rather, or feeling guilt. Yeah. I wonder what, are there situations where there is drug, um, there's drug use involved and perhaps the family was aware that there was drug use and, you know, they feel blame because they weren't able, they feel guilty because they weren't able to get that person the help that they needed. Do you see, um, do you see many cases of suicide by death that are um, really as a result of drugs, the uh, misuse of drugs? Yes, you know, the, the most common um, way, at least in the United States, to kill, the, kill yourself, the most common thing we see is firearms. And, um, and that's part of the reason that we think that, that more men are successful um, or and complete suicide than women because women, uh, although their use of firearms is increasing, they are more likely to use medications or overdose. And um, but so overdose would would be a, another sadly common way that people kill themselves. And that and it also is a confusing thing for some because um, sometimes it's hard to know, was this overdose an intentional overdose? Exactly. Or was this overdose unintentional? Right. Or, right. And, and it's inter and you, you can imagine that 
even if the person was here to tell you, they might not even be able to tell you, mm -hmm. you know, at that point, because, you know, people can get to the place where they, they're just not caring much whether they live or die. They just want to, you know, they just want some escape. And um, so it's hard to know. I think that there's a man named uh, Jack Jordan and he works a, he's a psychologist and he works a lot with people left behind. And, um, and I've, he's written and, and talked about this and I've had a chance to learn some from him. And, and he made a couple of points that to me are really uh, helpful. He said that people who are left behind on the part of, you know, feeling guilty, he said, almost always, not always, but almost always, they have some sense of guilt. Um, you know, that I could have done more. I should have seen something if I would have intervened. Uh, if I would have understood that kind of thing. And he said it, and so it's almost impossible, if not impossible, to keep from putting yourself on trial. Was, was I a part of the reason this happened? Mm -hmm. The important part is that it needs to be a fair trial. And that's the tricky part. Yeah, how does, how does that happen? How do you conduct a fair trial under those circumstances? Yeah, so, so one... One thing that he did, again, that was very helpful, he, and if you can imagine a drawing, so he drew a timeline. So if you imagine a timeline going over, and in that timeline, you put an X for today, and then back earlier in the timeline, you put an X for when this event happened. And so what, what we do, and I say we because I do this too uh, a lot, is we take all the stuff that we understand today, and we project it back into that time in the past and we hold ourselves responsible for it. We mm -hmm. say, I should have known everything I know today back then. And that's what he calls the tyranny of hindsight because it's impossible to do that. Of course. It's impossible for me to know today what I'm gonna know next week. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna learn some stuff, some things are gonna happen. And, there's, and I know things now that I didn't know last year. And, um, and so some of it, we just, it's just it's impossible to know. But when we hold ourselves responsible for that and say, I should have had the, the full understanding I have today back then, then in some ways, that's just not fair. So that's not a fair trial. I think that there's at least three things, and there's, I'm sure there's more than three, but at least in my experience, that people do when they really wrestle with the guilt. And struggle with guilt and sometimes and these are not exclusive because i think we do we can do combinations of these and and often it's it's a lifelong process and um and so one is we put ourselves on trial and we say you know what it it wasn't really me you know i did the best i knew at the time i i didn't see this i didn't see it coming and and so i'm not going to take that because it was not my deal. Uh, if I could give a, an easy example for, for me. So as you mentioned in the introduction, my father-in-law killed himself. I was the last to see him. But when I saw him, he was going to his car and I was coming home from work and it was late and it was night and I him and he waved at me and then the next time thing we knew, you know, he was dead. Well, 
so that's, that's kind of easy for me, right? Because it's like, should I have been able to tell something at that point, seeing him in the dark waving? No. So I don't feel guilty. Like I should have known him. I should have known at that point. Mm-hmm. Now, if I had, if I had known him well, if I'd spent a lot of time with him, you know, uh, then that would have been, I may have had some different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, or if, and even when we look back, he didn't give us many hints, if any, what was going to many of us. And so we look back and say, gosh, you know, he just really did a good job of keeping this close. But some other people wouldn't. So part of it is that trial piece. It's sometimes mm-hmm. we, we can declare ourselves not guilty after we do that fair trial. I think another thing that, that we do, people do, and we do, is, is we say, you know what? I'm going to pay some restitution. I, so, you know, I, I wreck my car into your car. I, and, uh, and so I, I can't make that different. It already happened, but I can help pay for it. I can help make it right, you know, and try to do something else. I can't change the past, but mm-hmm. I can try to fix and make the future better. Right. And, and so some people would say that. They say, you know, I can't save the life of this person who I cared for. I can't go back in the past and do that. But I can put some good into this world. And I can help other families. And I can support them. Or I can do other things to make the world a, a kinder, better, more supportive place. And, and, um, and I think a lot of good in the world happens that way. You know, where we say, I can't change the past. It's a painful thing. But I can do something with what I've learned to make the world a better place. Right. The, the tempting part of this one that's tricky is that sometimes people are can be tempted to pay restitution by suffering and say, you know, I, I'll never be happy again. That's how I'm going to pay my debt. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not going to pay anybody's debt is by suffering. So if I hit your car, Audrey, and I say, well, I'm not going to fix your car, but I'm just going to feel bad about it for a long time. And you're like, well, that's really not helping me, Greg. You know, that my, my car needs to be fixed and, and you could help me with that. And that would be better if I actually helped you and did something positive than if I just felt bad about it. And then the third thing is I think that people do is sometimes they, they find some experience of forgiveness. And they say, I can't let myself totally off the hook. I still feel bad about this. And there's only so much good I can put into the world. And I still feel it's still heavy for me. And um, and so they they find some experience where they say, you know, I'm only, I wish I could have done more. Um, I'm human. I made a mistake. I or I just didn't see. And um, and there's some forgiveness that they some, can sometimes find mm-hmm. for being human. And um, it reminds me, there was a, a man. It wasn't a suicide situation, but his name was. Dave Beeble, and he was a pastor, and he wrote a book about his son dying. And he said, he said, people came to him and said, you know, and he felt guilty about it because he was a parent, and a parent's job is to help your son, help your kids grow up, and his kid didn't grow up, so he felt guilt, guilty. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean he did anything to do it, or he could have stopped it, but he just felt guilty because he was a parent. Right. And uh, so... He said, what I realized somebody, I needed somebody to say to me was, you know, Dave, I hear you feel guilty. I don't think you need to feel guilty, but I know that you do. So what I want you to know is that I forgive you. Hmm. And, and that really spoke to me and that 
what he was saying to me at least was what he needed was forgiveness. He needed to feel forgiven. And, you know, for some people in their faith community, in their faith tradition, forgiveness is right in the middle of it. Right. And it's, and it's a kind of forgiveness that is a grace forgiveness. It's not one that you earned. It's just mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think that that's can be a real resource for some people that to find the forgiveness. But I think it, you know, what happens is that it's not that we do any of these things once and it's done. Oftentimes we have to do it over and over. And sometimes the forgiveness is forgiven the person who died and killed themselves because, and sometimes we have to forgive them for doing that. We forgive yes. ourselves because I wasn't there like I wanted to be and we forgive them. And then tomorrow I'm going to forgive myself some more and tomorrow I'm going to forgive them some more and I'm going to have to keep on doing it. You know, Greg, I, I was, you know, we've said a lot about um, forgiveness and sadness, but what role does anger play? I'll bet there are times when those loved ones who are left behind feel anger. Yes, I, I think that's very true. And, you know, Adrian, since I got into working in the grief support world, I've been impressed with how much for many people um, that their their grief experience is a lot about mad and not just about sad. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that there's, and what we know about anger is that anger is what we think of as a secondary emotion. So if you could look underneath anger or behind the curtain of anger, you'd find something else. Oftentimes we find hurt and oftentimes you find fear, mm-hmm. like fear, like the world is spinning out of control. But what comes out on this, what comes, what's on more on the surface is anger and being mad about that. But if we, but underneath that, if we got, if we got to it, we could see somebody's feeling deeply hurt and they're feeling afraid of how the world is or how it's going. And there's certainly in our family, there's times that we feel so sad for my father-in-law that he was in that dark of a place that he didn't ask for help. There were people who would have helped him and that he, you know, went this other way. There's sometimes we're pretty put out with him. Like, darn it, you could have been here and you, you missed out on your grandkids and, and, and we would have liked to have been around you. And, and so there's, there ought to be space for that too. Ought to be space for people to be angry, mm-hmm. angry, and space to be able to explore what that angry anger is all about. Absolutely, and you know, I, I said at the beginning of um, this interview that you, you know you, you just mentioned your your father in law, of course, but you have had your own share of experiences with loss and and grief. Um, how how have your how has having these experiences personally affected the way you help others uh, with the same pro- with this process? One thing I, th- I I would think about Audrey is that um, I remember feeling overwhelmed when when that all happened, and and I would say that for any of us, even if we've had a similar experience, you know, we don't fully understand somebody else's experience. You know, we just get a little 
window into what it might be for them. Right. You can't say, I get it, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't go get it. Not unless you tell me, if you tell me I can start to get it, but I'm not going to presume that the way I get it, the experience is yours. But, um, but I remember when, it, when that all happened, that I just felt I was a young man, had not had much experience in all this, and I just thought to myself, I am so over my head. You know, this is just so, this is too much. Um, and so that gave me, I think, a greater understanding and sensitivity to being overwhelmed and, and to feel helpless when you have somebody in your life that you love and you see them as suffering because it certainly affected my wife and her family much more deeply because it was their family. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and to see somebody hurt and know that there's only a limit to what you can help you can't take it away. And and that is a huge uh, lesson for those of us who try to help others is that in the end, you can't take it away. I can't take it away. And you have, you bear it with them as best you can. And you listen and try to understand, but, but you can't take their pain away. And, uh, and, and to try to, to try to do that actually ends up being counterproductive. And so that was really helpful to me to, in some ways as I've tried to be useful to other people to, to try not to do that and and to try not to fall into trying to explain it for somebody else mm-hmm. be, you know because everybody has to come up with their own answer about why did something happen and how am I going to live with that answer and that and the answer for me is not for you we had one of our, the relatives, when my father-in-law died, who said, well, I guess God really needed him in heaven. And I was the in-law, and I kept bit my tongue, because in my head I'm thinking, really? Really? That's, God put the gun in his hand and pulled the trigger? That's what you're saying? Hmm. But that was the way that person was making sense of it. Right. And... And it was not for me to say, for me to say, you can't make sense of it that way. That, that's, I don't know how they make sense of it today, but that's, they were searching so bad for an answer that they came up with that one, which in my opinion was not a very good answer, but people have to, to do it themselves and people are, can be tempted to find bad answers sometimes, bad answers that are not fair to themselves mm-hmm. or to, um, or to their family member, or to God. But the temptation to have an answer and to live is, is so hard and so big that it's, it's really hard to live without an answer. And, and, and that's kind of where I've, I've had certainly uh, seen people and I've gotten a lot more practice at living without good answers. That's, that's interesting. And do you think that in the case of, of what you, you were just mentioning, you know, the person saying, well, you know, God needed them in heaven. Mm-hmm. And, and you hear that frequently mm-hmm. about death a lot. But do you think that that is really a way of just sort of removing the entire, all of the pain or as much pain, responsibility, reasoning, logic, all of that? You don't have to do that. If you say it was it was time, it was just it was his time, it was her mm-hmm. time to go, and 
that's kind of a salve for the person who's saying that. It's not really to explain as much as it is to kind of maybe make them be able to deal with the situation. Is that possible? I, I think so. That you know the the idea in the grief world is that how well we adjust to something is very much connected to how much we can make meaning of what happened mm-hmm. and we can answer questions. And and suicide particularly is, is a hard death to make meaning of. So, you know, you mentioned in the intro, my mother died with cancer on hospice. Well, that was very sad, but she was 70 years old and people get cancer and they, and they sometimes get incurable cancer. It wasn't her fault, nobody's fault. She got good treatment and people die. And she and I expected one day she would die, uh, probably before me. So that didn't rock the way I thought about the world. It, it, it broke my heart, but it didn't challenge the meaning I made about how life works. Right. But when somebody dies by suicide, it can challenge the way we think well, life works. And... Um, and the younger the person is, probably the harder it is for us in some ways to think about that. Yes. And um, and so I think that people will grab on to some kind of way to make meaning. And um, and even sometimes I think a way to make meaning is that bad stuff happens and we can't control it and it's ran and it and uh, and that's the way the world is and that's another way to to make the meaning. Speaking of, of, of making meaning from something that, you know, doesn't make sense or so difficult, we, we do know that some people who die by suicide are able to become organ and tissue donors. And mm-hmm. you've worked with, with the families, some of these families, I believe. Yes. And in your experience, does the idea of donation that their loved one was able to donate organs or tissues, does that provide any comfort to the family? It, it does, in my experience, um, and I think it really does connect, as you mentioned, to the meaning-making piece, because if, if part of the meaning is, um, as we, part of the way we think about making meaning is, is what we call benefit finding, is can we find some benefit in the midst of the badness and of the loss? Now, we, we have to be really careful when we talk about that, because we're so the suggestion is not that the benefit justifies the loss or is equal to the loss or that we're glad this benefit came even with the loss. Well, I'm really glad, you know, I learned this lesson that that person died so he could teach me this lesson. That is not what we're saying. Mm-hmm. But we're saying in the midst of it, is there anything that is a positive, is that uh, we could say um, is redemptive perhaps mm-hmm. in and I think that organ donation to me really provides that to, to families in these kind of situations. It provides the opportunity, right? Because it's not mm-hmm. automatic, but it provides the opportunity to say, this was a horrendous thing, a terrible thing. I wish it would have never happened. But since it did happen, this is an opportunity to, to help another person with it. Absolutely. And to, and to change the legacy or expand the legacy of this person who died. Because part of what happens, especially in suicide, is that we think about that person and we think about that when they died, like that was the the most important, the most telling, uh, honest, 
expressive, true thing about them was that they killed themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's just not right. It was the last thing they did. It's not the only thing they did. It wasn't the most significant thing. It was significant in their life, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't um, the most telling thing about what their heart was or who they were. And so you could be a rascal. You could be a mean, you know, kind of person and then push somebody else out of the getting hit by a bus. And that does not mean that you were not a mean person who hurt people. Right. Right. It meant that the, the last thing you did was a kind, sacrificial thing, Mm -hmm. but it's part of the whole piece. And if the last thing somebody does is that they were overwhelmed with pain and in some ways, and that caused a whole bunch of hurt to the people left behind, but it doesn't mean that they weren't kind in other places and that they didn't love people Mm -hmm. and that they did other things too. It was just the last thing. It wasn't the only thing or the most significant thing about who they really were. Right. And I think that that the organ donation piece then can add to the picture who they of them because if they when I think about that person, what their life meant, it means a lot of different things. And now part of what their life meant is that other people's lives are better because of them. Absolutely. And so so that that one last quote bad act is sort of replaced with something that was is, is much easier, much more pleasant to remember, and that's that their loved one did something special for someone else, which is saved their life. Yes. Or restored yes. their life. Yeah, and it's a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a powerful thing to think about. Absolutely. So, as you know, and, and I mentioned earlier that September is National Suicide Awareness Month. Um so there could very well be someone in our audience who's listening, who has been affected in some way by um, death by suicide. And, and sadly, there could be someone who might be. So yeah. what, what information or resources are there for, for those who are struggling with grief and loss due to suicide or who might even be contemplating it themselves? Um, what, what, what resources are available? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked because there are a lot of resources available. And, and I want to mention some of those. And, okay. But, Audrey, I, I'd like to go back and, and say one other thing about my own, our own personal experience. Sure. Before shifting over, if I could. Absolutely. Um, and this has kind of taken off my, my social work and professional hat. But, but I had an opportunity a number of years ago to be a part of a panel um, there was a religious panel and I was had pastors on it talking about suicide and about their work with that. And frankly, I'm not sure how I got to be on that panel because I'm not a pastor. I am a person of faith and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm in the Christian tradition and, and I've been very active in my church and in my church tradition mm-hmm. my whole life. And, but anyway, I got on that panel. And so when I, making a few comments, I, I took off my social work hat and put on my person of faith hat because I think it's, for many people, that's a real challenge. Okay, how do they put this into their faith? And particularly that idea about, well, how, what about the next life? You know, what does that mm-hmm. mean for them? And, and so I'll share this in case it's useful for anybody else and, and, not, and not to say that anybody ha- will, you know, has to think the same way because people's religious beliefs or lack of religious beliefs, that's a very personal thing. 
But um, in our family, we thought about it this way. You know, if when my son was at, at college, if I would have got a call from my son's college and said, you know, Mr. Adams, you know, your son, he, he was overwhelmed and uh, with despair and and he was in a dark place and he tried to kill himself and, and he survived. You know, can, can he come home? We would say, my wife and I would say, well, yes, he can come home. He can always come home. And we believe in a God who is a better parent than we are and is more gracious and kind and understanding and wise. And, and so we believe that my father-in-law has a place in God's home in a, in, in a bigger and more powerful way even than, than the place of, that we would provide for our own children. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we carry that. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, to go back to to that resource question. Yes. Um, so maybe the most important thing to know for the people who may be listening is that that there is if if you were worried about somebody, mm -hmm. or if you were worried about yourself and not sure kind of where you are that there is a place to reach out to 24 hours a day, every day of the year. And it's a suicide prevention lifeline. And we have a center for that here in Arkansas. So mm -hmm. that if somebody calls, there are people here in Arkansas who answer that phone 24 hours a day, okay. every day of the year. And, um, and that number is 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. And some people um, like to text rather than talk. Yes. And and uh, and you can text seven four one seven four one, and and that you could get a response on a text. Or if you looked up that suicidepreventionlifeline.org, look if you Google that up on that there's a also a button you can do and you can chat with somebody. And so there, there's text, there's chat, there's a phone call away. If you're not even sure if this is a problem or what to do, or but you're worried that that you could call and you, you could reach out. So that is always there. Um, the other thing, there's a wonderful organization called the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Okay. And here in Arkansas, we have a great chapter. They have won national awards as a chapter. Mm. And, um, and their website, which is uh, for the organization, which is AF sp.org they have great information for people who uh, are wrestling with thoughts of suicide but also great information for people who are left behind and they have a couple different programs that happen here in, in Arkansas and around the country that are really powerful for many people one is that they uh, every year they around Arkansas they um, sponsor these out of the darkness walks where people it's for suicide prevention awareness. Mm -hmm. It also raises money for their work, but you don't have to pay anything to participate. And, um, and for many people who participate in those walks, it is a powerful thing because they're walking in honor of somebody right. and in memory of somebody. And uh, we, we participate, my wife and I, and we participate every year in honor of our father-in-law, my father-in-law. Yes. 
And then the Saturday before Thanksgiving, every year is the International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. And there are special programs that are available. And um, when it's not in a pandemic, those are in-person programs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we host that at Arkansas Children's Hospital in partnership with the AFSP and some other uh, support organizations. And, um, and it's free and people can come to be with other people who've had a similar experience and, and people benefit from that. And, and then the, the local chapter also has a program where they, if somebody wanted to and hook somebody up who's been, had that experience, who's a trained survivor volunteer so those are all through that group. There are sup- several support groups around the state um, that people can uh, reach out to and some people really get a lot of benefit from being a part of a support group. We at our, at uh, Center for Good Morning, we have some information about suicide and talking to kids about suicide. Mm-hmm. And and also there's, we do a grief and loss newsletter called the Morning News mm-hmm. uh, that, that's free for anybody. And it has all kinds of grief and loss information, and it goes out four times a year. And you could do that on our website, which is goodmorning.org. And we just did a, in the last edition, we had a, a sex section about asking questions. And we, and we talked about what it's like to be a friend, because this is the thing, important part, point I should make, Audrey, is that sometimes we give people mixed messages about suicide and how much they're responsible. So on the one hand, somebody has had somebody who's died by suicide in their life and thank you for using that language and we're really trying to say died by suicide not commit suicide right commit is a, a loaded word for many people yes and so it's a kinder way to say it otherwise but uh, but oftentimes what we'll say to somebody left behind we'll say you know what that, that wasn't you it wasn't your fault you know that other person ended up doing that on their own in the end it was them and not you and then on the, the next breath, we'll say, but if you're worried about somebody who might kill themselves, you got to tell somebody because you could save their life. And so, wait a minute, are we responsible for this? Are we not responsible for this? And um, so this is at least one way to think about it. So if, uh, if you were to go down the highway and you passed my little Toyota and it was crashed on the side of the road and you got out and you found me on the side of the highway and I had a but and my leg was bent in a way that legs are not supposed to be bent, then, you know, you strike me as a very kind and thoughtful person. But Audrey, I don't want you to, my guess is you are not an orthopedic specialist. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want you to try to fix my leg. <laughs> I want you, you can hold my hand, but with that other hand, I want you to take your cell phone and dial 911. <laughs> Absolutely. And get me somewhere where this is their thing, mm-hmm. where they know about fixing legs. Exactly. And so be my friend, but don't try to fix my problem. That's not yours to fix. Right. And if I get cancer and you're my friend, then pray for me if you pray and visit me and send me cards and take me to the doctor maybe even. But don't come to me and say, hey, Greg, I found this. You know, I cooked up this chemotherapy in my kitchen. I found this recipe on the Internet. I think this will take care of your problem because that is not your thing. Right. And and so if you have somebody who is suicidally depressed, your job is not to solve their suicidal depression. Even if you're a mental health professional, their job is not to wave a wand and, and fix that either. But it's definitely not your job. Your job is to support them 
be a friend to them and encourage them to go to someone who this is their expertise is helping people with this problem. Right. So we do have a responsibility to try to help, but we don't want to try to take on more responsibility than is ours. And that is really possible. And it's okay to ask somebody for worried about it, about them. Mm-hmm. They, you know, you have so much stuff going on, man. Some people, when they have so much stuff going on and they're, and they, and such a difficult place like you're dealing with, you know, they've even thought about, you know, thoughts about suicide. You know, have you had those thoughts? And it's okay to ask. In fact, it's mm-hmm. even helpful because if they have, then they can say, well, yeah, I have. And then, then okay, well, then we know what we need to do, right? We need to get some help. And we need to call that 800 number or, or do some, or, or find another person who can help you with that and and i'll help you and if they haven't had them they can say well you know i really haven't you know had it's been hard but i haven't thought about that then you can breathe easier and then they can breathe easier because wait they know that you're the kind of person that if they ever did have that thought you're the kind of person they could tell and then you don't have to go to bed tonight worrying gosh i wonder if they're if they're in that dark of a place, right, right, and uh, so it's o- it's always okay to ask if you if you have that worry. Craig, all of this has been so informative. Um, lots of information that I certainly never had before regarding this topic, and I'm I'm certain that there are many of in our audience who are really so happy to have had an opportunity to hear you so that they can also benefit from your experience as well. So really want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we know that suicide is a difficult subject for many people to discuss, but it, it is quite an important one. And thank you so much for helping us to shine a light on it today. Well, you're very welcome. I, I so respect and support the work that Aurora does because it. It helps people in so many different ways. Obviously, the people who get an organ or a tissue, it changes their life, but it yes. also impacts the lives of those who are on the giving end. And uh, and so I'm glad to do anything that would be in support of the good work that you all do. Thank you very much, Greg. And if you have any questions for us, please call 501-907-9150. And if you're ready to make a life-restoring decision and register to become an organ, tissue, and eye donor, go to donatelifearkansas.org. Radiate is a production of Aurora and is hosted by Audrey Coleman, Aurora's Director of Communications.